Then put your little hand in mine There ain't no hill or mountain we can't climb And welcome to Groundhog Minute, the podcast where we celebrate the 1993 classic Groundhog Day one repetitive minute at a time. I'm your host, Dave. And I'm your other host, Sean. And back with us today is our special guest from the Cabin Minute cast, Molly. Yay! Welcome back. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much. Yay. I'm happy to be back. Yeah. Thanks for uh, for sticking around for uh, another great minute. Yeah. Yeah. First, good news, bad news. Bad news is the uh, pencil is still here and it's intact. So <laughs> never mind that. Uh, but the good news is that we're here for minute 26. So minute 26, we see Phil rushing down the street trying to uh, to, to dodge Ned and still hits that pothole once again. And he reaches Rita, tells her that he, he wants to talk about a non-work-related issue. She can do the report and he'll be waiting for her in the diner. So I'm going to start off. So we get we, we talked about a little bit last minute, but we get more of the the more ominous kind of less whimsical music here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's, you know, definite signal from the filmmaker that this is not, this is not just another, another day. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the close I can compare this music to is something you'd hear in Twilight Zone. That's, mm. a clo- that's like the, that's like the mm. first thing that came to my mind. It's like, you know, like in any episode of somebody's like in a town, it's empty town though. I mean, all these people are here, but to him, they mean nothing because he's just stuck in a loop. No one else is going to save him. So, yeah, so there's that, that helplessness. Yeah. And then if he turns a block, it's like paranoid music. Yeah. So what you I know? think of, yeah, when he turns that corner and he's like, you know, he, he sees the old man is there again. I thought of like uh, Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. Little, yeah. Yeah. A little, like a little Beetlejuice flavor <laughs> supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, may not exactly, but yeah, just to kind of like this is not yeah, but but Twilight Zone as well. Like this is spookiness, supernatural, scary. We see, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, the way Phil jumps and and it's like everything's building. He sees the guy in the hallway. That's the same. He see you know the pencils back together. Mrs. Lancaster, mm-hmm. the people, the the woman with the red bag, uh, walking down the street that he sees as he's coming out of the the bed and breakfast like everything's the same and then he turns the corner and there's the old man and mm-hmm. it, it spooks him mm-hmm. it's what it, there's got to be a name for it that I'm I don't know but it's like okay this is a nice town all these people are friendly no one means anyone harm mm-hmm. but with our perspective here this is horrific this is horrific this is scary this is putting us all on edge the fact that we now feel through the music and through him jumping, literally, it's just a it's just a little homeless guy asking for change. But to him and us, it's just like oh god, like it's just this this horror of just like it's all coming at him and Ned's coming at him. He wants it's like I don't know if there's there's, there's got to be a name for it where it's like horror and the familiar or something. Mm. It's horror. It's like ah, oh, it's like you're in a pleasant thing, but there's no, but you're stuck. You're a prison in there. But to everyone else. Everyone is just, just nice and stuff. There's got to be a, a trope for that. I got I to gotta think about. Yeah, th- yeah. But that's the that's the vibe I get. Him walking down that town, the uh, the street. Yeah, and that's a very Twilight Zone type thing. That it's the mm-hmm. the scary normalcy. Yeah, every the town's normal. Everyone they're acting normal, 
but their normalness is freaking Phil out. Right. Yeah. He's Yeah, and there's the isolation for him at this point must be just frightening because like there's no we I mean, you know, there's a certain level of reality we depend on day in day out, which is com- completely ripped from him. So, I mean, on one hand, I I see this in and I feel like he's being reserved. Like his reaction is even a, a little bit more. I mean, I know he's kind of like a chill dude in a sense mm-hmm. in his uh, his affect, but yeah, I mean, he could be going off the rails so much more. And I know we're early on, but still, I, I feel like this is a very he he could be far worse in his insanity because he's uh, he's so isolated in in his reality right now. There's no one to verify for him, right? And I kind of feel like there would there's like the saying what. Once is coincidence, or once is happenstance. Twice is coincidence. Three times is is enemy action, or something like that. Basically, mm. like, all right, something you know, two things can happen together, or something can happen twice, and that's just coincidence or whatever. But if it, you know, the third time, that's where you know this is not just chance. Something's weird going on. Yeah. So the the first day it repeats, that could just be, you know, oh, I've I've. I've done this report. I've been to the same town too many years in a row. And I, you know, I dreamt about it. And then this town is so predictable that my dream came true in a spooky fashion. Like he could kind of, if it only happened twice, he would just explain it away and, and not, you know, not really pay it much mind. But this third time now you, you cannot deny it. He cannot explain it away. This is not deja vu. This is, yeah, this is something else, and it's not happening to anyone else. He's all alone. Right. Ned, it's all I got to say. (laughs) Why have you been going? I've just been watching, like, every frame of just, like, Ned's even, you know, just, everything's more accelerated with Ned. Like, it's just like, you know, him, and he gets pushed, he laughs it off, like he's a robot, and... You know, his programming, he must introduce himself. And, you know, like if that, if this scene went on, you know, if him running went on for another block, you know, he'd be like, oh, I stay in shape, gonna be healthy. You know what's good about being healthy? Life is, you know, just like work his way into that. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he's, he's right into the pitch that we've heard, we've heard before with the, yeah, Needle Nose Ned, Ned the Head. He's, he's given his, he's given his, uh, his lines, his uh, his pitch. He's trying to pitch Phil. He's trying to be. Yeah, Ned is Ned is Ned. The only good thing is we Ned doesn't get the satisfaction of having won over mm-hmm. Phil because Phil didn't really say anything to him. He didn't put he didn't put Ned down. He didn't like ignore Ned to the point where Ned feels good that he stepped in that puddle. Like he's still kind of concerned, and he just goes, "Hey." <laughs> Like that's it. He's not like <laughs> it's a dude. Like he has no, he gets no enjoyment from this because you know Phil really didn't give him anything to work off of. Mm-hmm. Phil didn't try to ignore him. Didn't say like, oh yeah, I remember you right. dated my sister. I mean, other than yeah, other than it's, he he you know gives him a big shove in the beginning and then kind of just gives him the forearm towards the end. <laughs> but other than that, he like doesn't engage. He's not. Oh, I gotta go. I don't have time. I don't remember you. I'm just. <laughs> I'm just running. Right. Yeah. And there's something slightly less personal because I can understand feeling upset. You know, I mean, if I if I put myself in Ned's shoes mm-hmm. for a moment and 
you know, you, you find someone who you had several connections to, you know, as a, as a youth and, and to run into them and granted he pitches them and he's annoying. And, and that's an, that's a, an understandable hell on Phil's behalf. But I can see also that, like you were saying that there's a little bit more satisfaction in seeing him step in a puddle when, you know, he doesn't acknowledge him and is kind of dismissive and is rude. And, and there isn't that opportunity. It's just, it's such an immediate, like, no, we don't even get to go there yet. You know, it, we don't even get to go mm-hmm. to the personal yet here. So yeah, he does. So yeah, all that running, he really doesn't save any time. Still runs into Ned, still hits the puddle. And, and Rita still has that, you know, where you been. So I, like I said, Sean, like clearly when he originally set the six o'clock timer, he should have set it for five. Because clearly Rita, the, the, the tone she says makes it sound like he should have been here at 530 for prep, but he's not. Because originally, yeah. Phil's going to walk in, camera on me, dead, done, groundhog, I'm out. Well, is, is there, I, I wonder, could he, if he changes the clock? If he says, yeah, let me set it for five instead of six, does it go off at five or or does it – I mean, I, I kind of think it would still go off at six no matter what he does. Oh, I what agree. Do, what do you guys think? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've never gotten – that's the thing. We've never gotten dangerously close to that to that jump. He's always fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. So we do not know that if at 5.59 he's still ahead of the timeline and then six o'clock we warp. We don't – you know, he just – Warps back in bed. Yeah, what what happens at that moment? And there is so there is and there is a certain elasticity to the time because obviously we saw him the previous minute. He where like the the first day thinking of going back to the man in the hallway. The first day he stops and they do a little chit chat like oh off to see the groundhog. Mm-hmm. Then the second day he takes even longer because he's like he kind of pushes the guy up against the wall and. Didn't you say that yesterday and what's going on? So I feel like that, you know, then that took even longer. Whereas then this is the opposite. This third time through, he runs right past the guy, runs right past Mrs. Lancaster. He's got to be a few, uh, you know, he should be a few minutes ahead of where he was. But when we look at the background, the cars that are driving past as he's turning the corner, um, you know, past the old man, the cars that are going through the intersection, Ned rocking by, all that's the same. When, mm-hmm. like, if the town really is the same each time, those things should be a little bit different. The timing should be a little bit off, but it, mm-hmm. but it isn't. It's all, it, it's all just a little bit elastic, snapping to the points. You know, when when Phil when he hits the lobby of the bed and breakfast when he hits that corner, when he gets to gobbler's knob and, and all those things that like kind of everyone else is on their marks at those, those particular points. Yeah. I think you guys both made some really good points here about like the time and also in relation to his character and that he is, he is late. And so I think you guys are, are totally right in that that seems to be very consistent with his character and his flippancy mm-hmm. and his disrespect for the job and disdain for <laughs> yeah. it at this point, that he would in fact set his alarm later than he really should. Cause mm-hmm. he really doesn't care to show up on time and do a decent job because he's done this so many times. So it totally makes sense to me that he's been forced into this 6 a.m. routine mm-hmm. and that he's already late from get-go. Right. And so he's put them – and then 
because he did that the first day, now he set the pattern and he's going to mm-hmm. be late every day. Yeah, every time. Every time. Right. Good point. Yeah, and I just want to point out quickly, we get um we do get two more double fills this minute. So we got Phil or sorry, Ned giving the the fill, Phil Connors, mm-hmm. and then uh Rita gives the fill fill over here. Um <laughs> so that's we're up to we're up to six for the uh the folks that are counting along or keeping score at home. We've got six of the double fills of people referring, you know, calling Phil Connor. And repeating his name, but uh, yeah. So this is interesting. One, one of the things I wanted to talk about for for this minute is the awareness that we've talked about that that Phil is aware of the loop that that he's in, and it's not. Well, at least at this point, we're not in a strictly reincarnation scenario because he's not dying; he's just reliving the same day over and over again. But this is kind of different. Mm -hmm. There are, you know, there are religions and there are philosophies and belief systems that have reincarnation. But I think it's unusual that, that the individual remembers it. Usually it it requires meditation or you have to be sort of that signifies that you're on a higher plane of understanding to reach the point Mm -hmm. where you, where you're aware of the reincarnation. You remember your previous cycles that you've been through, generally you don't. Um, and, and especially mm-hmm. one thing I've, I've mentioned, um, kind of Nietzsche and, and nihilism and, and how that plays into the the movie. And, and one of the things Nietzsche talks about is the idea of of eternal recurrence, and that just and and, and he kind of Nietzsche has some misunderstandings of physics, but he kind of logic his way into it in that given an infinite amount of time, that eventually the universe is going to come around upon itself and things are going to happen over and over again. And you're going to end up in the same place, the same arrangement of matter, just, you know, given, you know, with the the infinite universe and infinite time, eventually that's going to happen. But he, you know, he specified, you wouldn't know that that we do these things and we repeat these patterns and we're not aware of it. And I think it's, it's similar. The Hindus and and Buddhists have the idea of, of samsara, which is that that cycle of life um, and things repeating, but again, it's the ordinary person isn't aware, isn't going to remember. But here in this situation, Phil Phil is remembering. Phil is has the mm-hmm. recall, is aware that that this pattern is repeating. Mm-hmm. I just had a theory. I had a theory. Lay it on me. Let us know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because I was thinking, I said, you know, he's. He, you know, he goes down that street, he goes with that and he hits the puddle and as, as the puddle's a good joke, you know, it makes you think, you know, why isn't it that Phil doesn't remember the puddle? And, and I thought of something that, that, that for us in our lives, we can't experience it. This is what I'm about to theorize. We can't physically experience it, but the opposite of that people, there are people who have experienced it. Okay. So what I'm referring to is a reverse version of phantom pain where it's that people who have lost a limb, like they've lost their leg under their knee. They report that sometimes when they're not looking at their leg, they can feel their toes and they can feel their ankle and they can feel what it would be like for their one foot to be touching the ground. Mm. And they look and then they don't have that leg there. It's just their knee. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that is, they're getting a memory of something that's not there. So what I'm thinking is that, 
we, we talked about this earlier, whereas his consciousness is going back to Phil at 6 a.m. at Groundhog Day, but his body is reset. So because so, we know that if during this day, Phil would cut his hand and it would bleed and he could look at the wound, he could feel the pain. The next day, he's or next day when we repeat, he's going to wake up in bed and mm-hmm. his hand is fine. So what I'm theorizing is that Phil has a memory of pain, but he looks at his hand and there's really nothing there to connect it to. It's kind of like a, did it really happen? Like my, 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 my muscles, my hand, they're not telling me pain because I don't see the pain. I, there is no cut. And, and that kind of the memory of that pain kind of like you have nothing to grasp to. You have no evidence of the pain. You just have this fleeting memory. So I'm, I'm now going to move that to the cold, damp foot because he steps in the puddle. He's got a cold, damp foot and it's going to be with him all day. But when he uh, uh, you know, until he mm-hmm. changes his socks, but when he wakes up the next day, you know, his foot's dry and it's warm and he's in bed and it's like his body's forgotten about the cold, wet puddle. And so he, his brain doesn't bring it up because mm. he has no evidence of it. He has no memory right now of his foot ever being wet and cold. So in his mind, he's not thinking about it. He's thinking about, oh, every repeat of the day, they're playing Sonny and Cher again. The guy in the hall is annoying. Mrs. Lancaster's annoying. I got to go. Mm-hmm. And so and, and because we talk about time dilation, no matter what he does, he seems to get in that same same street, same people, same block, same puddle. Mm. And and then he goes, oh, the puddle, I forgot. And he would. He always will forget, uh, at least for now about this puddle is because he doesn't have the muscle memory mm. of the foot being uh, wet and cold because his body resets. So you have the memory of a cold, wet foot, but no evidence to support it because like your foot's like, nah, you were never cold and wet. So it's like, it's the same thing. He, so that's my, that's my theory of like, Oh man, why is Phil never always forget about that puddle? Cause his body's not telling him. Mm. His body's not reminding him because his body never actually hit the puddle. It's, his mind has a fleeting memory of it. So mm. put that on. Yeah, the, the separation between the mind and the body, the body's reset, but the it's the mind alone that is going through these cycles. or that Which would pain. probably drive you crazier, faster. Right, right. Mm. There isn't a buildup of muscle memory because it hasn't wow. been grounded physically yet. And that does... That does track with with him having to grow in awareness throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. And one could argue that he does go through a, a type of enlightenment if you wanted to take a Buddhist, you know. And I, I'm and I'm Buddhist, so I'm I'm going to take. I'm just going to throw it out there and I'll and I'll frame it within my own, you know, teleology. But yeah, I I, I really feel like that tracks what you're saying is that there's a, a mindfulness aspect, and if he's growing in awareness and he's growing in mindfulness and he has to psychologically go through these different stages, if you will, between the nihilistic, which will come up and, and, you know, going from, you know, the gross body physicality, which we're, we're growing in, which I think is, is it an excellent point that he just hasn't, he's also, you know, Dave, as you were mentioning, he's got all of these other things that are front of mind, you know, the pencils intact, 
I got to get to the the knob, the gobbler's knob. I've got to go find somebody who can who can verify my reality. I just I, I I've got a one track mind, therefore I'm not mindful of all of these other small things that are coming along the way. All these other options for for connectivity, and he's literally pushing them away. So that's really interesting that he has to go through these cycles so many times to to ground that physically, and his tether is going to have to be his mind to do it. Because it's not going to happen through the body. <sighs> that is wow. Yeah, wow. That's because I've. I, yeah, wow. Yeah, I've. I've thought of this movie in yeah the the spiritual changes and the psychological and emotional changes that Phil goes through during this experience and hadn't really contemplated the yeah the the physical side. I mean, he is a man. It's a you know a brain, a mind inside a body. He has that that existence in the mm. world. And so it makes sense that that's going to be part of this as well. And if, yeah. And we, we do see later where he, he makes other changes to, to himself. Um, it's not just pencils that he breaks to, to check that, mm-hmm. you know, that things are in fact resetting. And yeah, we see physically as, as we've kind of talked about the, this minute and last, um, we'll see kind of the his physicality gets reset even while his brain, you know, his mind is aware of these loops and he's remembering these different days. But yeah, he wouldn't have mm. the physical memory that if he cut himself, a scar would would not heal. The, the scar would never have happened, would be removed for the next day. But does yeah, to really reach enlightenment, to to kind of move on to the next phase of existence, those things have to go together. The mind, I don't think the mind can move on mm. without the body, not in a way that, that we, we, you know, we can understand. I don't know if, mm. you know, that kind of, you're getting into the realm of, of, of kind of afterlife. If you're talking about the mind moving on or the soul moving on without the body. And that's, you know, that doesn't happen with Phil, yeah. but there is a point where he does to kind of, to, to get ahead, there is a point where he does remember that the pothole and he does miss, you know, he remembers to step over rather than step in. So mm-hmm. that's something to, to watch out for, to see if kind of the almost think of it like an elastic, like two weights with, an, you know, attached by an elastic that the, the mind and the body are together and they drift apart and, how do they move in relation to each other and do they come back together and, and how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause he does in a sense, mind mindfully break his own body later on down the road a couple of times, yeah. really. Yes. Which, you know, you, when you guys get there, you get there, but you know, he does, he is willing to, to transcend it for a variety of reasons, but he gets past it. Yeah, that's a, so, a lot to think about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, we got we got too we got too high. Uh, uh, not too high. But we got we got high up in the cloud. Is what I need to say. We're too. We I got to bring us back down to the physical level. And Sean, is this? A, I want to talk. Is this a continuity error or not? But Larry is not mounted the camera. He's he's fiddling with it. Why is he fiddling with it? When we've seen the past two days. He's had the camera mounted and, and because shooting Larry is not a good cameraman. Well, because 
Well, because we. Well, I mean, I, I had a question I, about I, this. Okay. Kind of. Well, I'll, I'll get to my question at the end. But we we talked about this on the second day or the the second time through when Phil just kind of gives up. He gives. You know, he kind of starts into his little speech, and then he just he can't do it again. He drops the mic. He he walks off, and and Larry drops the camera. And I think I think it was. You, you, Dave, that pointed out that like he should, even if no matter what Phil does, if Phil walks away, he should at least keep the camera on the groundhog and what's going on in the stage. You know, he, just because Phil has given up and walked away, Larry shouldn't be dropping the camera. And I think it's the, the same thing here. Even if Phil yes. is like, I mean, at this point, he doesn't even start the the presentation. He's completely bagged it. But yeah, you we can see behind as. Um, as, as Phil is talking to Rita, we can see the assemblage happening on the stage behind them. And yeah, Phil should not be distracted on what's going on. I mean, he, you know, internally in his mind, he's wondering uh, what's going on with Phil. But what he should be doing is capturing the, you know, just having the camera up and be like, okay, we just, you know, we won't have any commentary or maybe we'll they'll have to do the commentary live in the studio as the video's playing. But yeah, he should be getting the shot. Yeah, because it looks bad because like there's a cameraman next to him. Oh, the camera's already mounted yeah. and that cameraman's already filming. Mm-hmm. So it's like Larry, he, as I said, he was on it. And look, he's got another, he's got a photographer behind mm-hmm. him over his uh, right shoulder uh, on a left screen here. You got a, you got a photographer. He's starting to take pictures. And yeah. Well, Larry's then, still and, fiddling. And he's just fiddling. <laughs> the camera down. It's like, you've, had, you've been fiddling. You've been fiddling with like, you know, with yeah. Rita probably talking about stuff. So it's like, you know, I feel like she would right. be like, all right, come well, on, shoot remember something. We're paying for on this, you know? day, I think, let me uh, check my notes. I think it's minute eight or maybe, maybe it's minute minute nine or ten by the time we get to this point. But Phil grabs the camera and he uses the lens as kind of a mirror. And he's like checking his hair. He like grabs the camera to make sure the lens is on him so he can like, <laughs> you know, check his looks. And and for him to do that, the camera must have been up and pointed to, towards him. And yeah, like you said, mm-hmm. Larry's just fiddling. And so the the question I had, what what I had in my notes is, so what do you think Rita and Larry do for the ceremony after you know when when Phil walks away, mm-hmm. do they just throw their hands up and give up and and they go meet Phil in the diner, or does Rita walk over to the diner and like leave Larry there and say? You know, at least capture the ceremony, even if we don't have kind of someone running commentary. Yeah. What what do Phil and Rita do after Phil walks away? Mm, that's a great question. Honestly, yeah, it really kind of goes, all right, Rita, can you improv? <laughs> yeah. uh, can you improv a news report? And like, and like, example, like they're probably the studio, if they are doing it live with like, and we cut to <laughs> Phil Connors now. And it's just like, it's like, cut to, it's just Rita yeah. like. Hold the microphone, like, hi, it's me. <laughs> like, oh, our producer Rita is on the scene. And then, like, you know, because like I said, they don't have a cell phone on them. They're not, like, calling the studio. So, like, other than, like, if Larry turns the camera on and, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Do you, I guess he's, I guess he's, I guess they're recording it. See, that's what I was trying to figure out is that if it feels like they record it and then they're going to take it to the van and then just, like, broadcast it back to the studio later. Yeah, because because how she said, let's do it in the first day when she goes, let's do a second take. It feels like let's not and let's go. I'm guessing is that like they are going to just record this now at seven o'clock. And then I guess 
edit it, flip it, and send it to 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 Pittsburgh for like I guess the eight, eight in the morning show or something. Yeah, I do think because I I don't like it doesn't look like this camera is wired into anything or it's not it's not beaming stuff back to Pittsburgh. But I do think if I remember correctly, I do think there was like a little dish on the roof of the van. So yeah, if it's seven twenty and thirty seconds now, maybe that gives them enough time that they. They use the the link up on the van and they send it back to Pittsburgh and they can get it on for for the eight o'clock. But we can see. So I've I've got, you know, going forward to 54 seconds in the minute, you know, Phil's just walked off. Rita's kind of puzzled. Larry's there with his prima donna comment. Gotta pause it. You know, we we, again, we have another Rita comeback, you know? Oh, yeah. That word. Did you you ever talk about that? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's all he did. That's all he did in the van was talk about how he's better than this and this town's that, and not about any of the actual broadcast yeah. ideas that she had the idea of. Mm-hmm. So I mean, once again, she has nothing. I'm, I'm, can we be serious? Can you? I want to like, talk about yeah. I'm, like talk about non-work related. Well, you never talk about work. She's yeah. Maybe maybe that's why he confides in her because she's kind of she's pegged him really quickly. She's got his number and she's not afraid to challenge him and, and give him, you know, give him back the little zingers that he's usually dishing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so, so yeah, I was looking at, 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 at second 54 and there we see behind Larry and Rita, the guys, the top hats with the stage, the, the, the head guy has got his, uh you know, his groundhog door knocking stick in hand. One guy's holding up the sign that says weather capital of the world, like, <laughs> and they're looking the complete opposite direction. They're, it looks like they're about to miss the show, you know, the, the main event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing I hadn't noticed before that I just noticed rewatching this one minute at a time is the creepy groundhog official right over Larry's shoulder. He's holding, he's the keeper of the scroll. Oh, you and this guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I wrote it this morning. I wrote, I, wrote, I wrote what the groundhog was saying. I'm very excited. But that, yeah, so that was a good point. I like, yeah, we should make make a note whenever whenever Rita is kind of giving it, giving Phil the business, as it uh, were. Yeah. Go, so Rita. I'm, I'm guessing it won't be a report. I'm guessing it's going to be like B-roll of like zoom in close up of Phil being taken out, a <laughs> clip of uh, – the, Phil uh, the groundhog, was, not Phil Connors. Phil the groundhog. What was – what's – um. What's uh uh Brian Michael Murray? Uh, what's what's his character? Oh, what's his character's Brian name? Dorm, Brian Brian Doyle Murray, right? Murray, you Murphy. Yeah. Murray. That's what did I? I said Brian Doyle Murray. You keep saying Murphy. Like and we are in an episode twenty six, and you I paid you at least five times. I got to keep a, a running it's number. Bus, uh, Buster. Uh, the character. His name. The character's name is Buster. Okay. The the right, head so grab. That's with the beat roll. It's got to be what the B-roll is going to be now because she hasn't any time to improv it or let the studio know what's going on. So it's going to be Larry just zoomed in close up of Punxsutawney Phil and then Buster reading the proclamation and then a little bit of like the town and whatever Larry can get now since he's not prepped. He's just he's got the cameras yeah. down at your feet, Larry. Come on. Mm-hmm. Come on. You have one job, Larry. Just stand there. Point the camera at the groundhog. That's all you got to do. Just because co- – just because Connor doesn't want to do his job doesn't mean you yeah. get a free pass either. It's not a yep. holiday. Yeah. Oh God, you know what we need? We need some coffee. Coffee, hun. Mm. 
Yeah. Oh, at the man. tip top. Tip top diner. Tip top <laughs> diner. And I love this. So this was uh this was actually a vacant storefront. This this corner thing, which I'm surprised, but according to Harold Ramis, when they arrived in in their fictional punk Zatani, that this was vacant and they built the uh they built the diner, you know, just to be a set, just for the movie. And the town liked it so much that they kept it as a diner. They said, yeah, let's have a diner on this corner, Thank which you. it should be. Nice. And I like the little the, the yeah, top hat logo spot. for the tip top, tip top mm-hmm. cafe. And uh, and we get to uh, we get, I think, it's our first look of uh, of Doris, right? Yes, Doris, Doris the waitress. I, I have any notes for her. I was going to kind of save it for a little later. But I mean, like, if you got notes for her right now, I'll, I'll hear them. Yeah, I mean we don't we don't get much, so I think Dave and I we can we can talk about Doris and the diner next minute. But Molly, what do you think? Anything? What do you think about this diner? You know, I I love these type of diners. I don't know what you guys where you guys hung out as teenagers, but mm-hmm. there was in I, I grew up in a smallish town, and so one of the things that uh, us teenagers would do would go to these types of you know kind of kitschy diners that are, are really look like they're meant for more of an elderly population, but we would go and get, you know, really crappy coffee and stay mm-hmm. out to like two o'clock <laughs> in the morning. So I have a real soft spot in my heart for these types of, of diners. So that's what it reminds me of. Uh, and, and I dig that there are these, there's a, a couple of clocks over Phil's shoulder here too. So I feel like this, this frozen in time clock situation is, is a great little, I don't know if you call it a trope, but uh, it's a little symbol of, of his experience. And, and I, I appreciate those little touches in this moment. Yeah. Well, we, we, we both, Dave and I, we grew up in New Jersey. Oh, okay. So I, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Diners were a big part of my, uh, my formative years. And I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb. I'm going to assume the same is true for you, Dave, right? Spent a lot of time in diners. Very much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We used to go out, you know, Friday, Saturday night because the, well, the diners were, we're open 24 hours a day. So, you know, Friday or Saturday night hit, hit Rocky Horror at, you know, the midnight movie. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, two o'clock, roll into the diner and just, you know, coffee, cheese fries and gravies mm-hmm. or a, a burger at three in the morning because you could get anything on the menu at any time of day. This, this absurd authoritarian idea that there's breakfast hours. <laughs> it's like, no, it's, <laughs> if you want a burger at 6 a.m., you want, you know, you want pancakes and eggs at, you know, at 8 p.m., whatever, any time of day. They'll anything on the menu they will make for you anytime. Mm-hmm. Just just the way it should be. I Yeah, so spent a lot of time in diners. I want to give a shout out to the Harvest Diner in Dalran because yeah, uh a lot many, many kids, including myself, uh spent a lot of time there. And the um the old Greek guy and his family that ran that diner, I think they did a great job. I got I to gotta give them credit because I don't think I ever had a bad meal there. Like, and I tried. I tried to actually. <laughs> like, like, I would be like, you know, like I, I, honest to God, I still think about the one seafood meal I had there is still in a top 10 seafood meals I've had. It was so cool. I saw it was like the, the crab cake and scallops platter. I said, I'm going to do it. Like, I will take the risk. If this wow. is bad, I get sick. And I got diner I, seafood. You're a brave man. I told my mom, yeah. I said, Mom, I said, Mom, I was like, I can't believe how good <laughs> it is. So I got it was uh it was green beans, baked potato, and what it was is it was like two, like think of a Dixie cup, like two Dixie cups of tin foil. And inside was crab meat on the in, uh, inside, 
like layered down, and on the top were like three scallops in each. So a total of six scallops. Wow. Crab meat, and then mashed potatoes, uh, uh, mashed potatoes gravy, uh, and green beans. And I'm like, I still think about how how crazy good that meal was at a diner. And I remember I got, I remember once I was like, whatever. I got a milkshake. I got French onion soup. I was like trying to get crazy, and every time I was like, son of a gun. Like I enjoyed my meal. Like I, I couldn't get over it. And. And, and and actually, I love the the waitresses who like dealt with us kids. Like they were geniuses. They pretty much go up, and as soon as like three people said coffee, they already knew what was going to go on. And so <laughs> what they would do is they go, "All right, who wants coffee? How many coffee?" And, you go, and then she would just come back with that carafe that, that that Doris is holding, mm-hmm. and just put the carafe down. She'd fill she'd fill the, the the cups up, and then just put the carafe down. Like she knew she knew the game plan. She's like, carafe down. Like, I know you're gonna ask for more. I'm not even gonna waste your time asking. Bam, carafe's down. I was like, she was on point. She knew it. Mm-hmm. You know, bless those waitresses. Seriously, because they were like secondary babysitters for a whole generation of teenagers. <laughs> seriously. Yeah. yeah. She's like, that's it. I'm gonna put the craft down and go back to like you know reading my whatever. If I'm reading a magazine or something, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're they're just geniuses. They knew what us kids wanted. We just know to be left alone with our coffee. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Good yeah. Times. Well, I yeah, I, I I am so glad we finally get, get here because like I cannot wait for the minutes where like we really get to see this diner. We get to really experience everyone. We only got a little mm-hmm. just a little just a little taste here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would love to have more coffee in the tip top diner. Mm. Oh. All right. Well, so that's that's all I got for Minute 26. Molly, you have anything else minute 26 or, or groundhog related you want to you wanna share with us? Nope. Nope. That's it. All right. I think we did a good coverage. We went we went ground level. We went from, from Larry pointing the camera at the ground, and then we went into the metaphysical, just high-brain <laughs> energy capacity level we went we went all spectrums it's great i love it and then and then just finished it with a hot cup of coffee at the diner where every long day should end yes (laughs) yes all right well so molly thank you again very much for for stopping by and also once again if folks want to hear hear more of your insightful commentary and (laughs) maybe a little bit more of my former co-host heidi bennett where can they do that well, you can head over to cabinminutecast.com and we are talking about the cabin in the woods one minute at a time. Nice. All right. And so that is it for us. And thank you for listening. Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening. And we will see you tomorrow if there is one.